Nuclear Hot Seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what happens when nuclear's so-called experts get it wrong. This week, let's review some of our anti-nuclear gifts by revisiting three of our most powerful speakers from 2013. First, our interview with Dr. Helen Caldicott from Nuclear Hot Seat number 83 on January 15. In it, she talks about what was then her upcoming symposium on the medical and environmental consequences of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. Let's get a little bit of background so we can understand a bit about how you got into the nuclear issue to begin with. You were a successful pediatrician in Australia, and here in the U.S., you had uh, quite prestigious positions on the staff of Children's Hospital Medical Center in Boston, and you taught pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. What originally drew you into the nuclear issue? Well, I've actually been in it ever since I was about 16 and read a book called On the Beach by Neville Shute, which was about a nuclear war that occurred by accident in the Northern Hemisphere. And gradually the radiation came down to Melbourne, which is where I lived. And in the end, um, everybody died. Um, And that really um, branded my soul. I was never the same again. And then I went to medical school age 17 and learned about radiation genetics and how it can induce mutations, genetic disease and deformities. And at the time... Russia and America were testing bombs in the atmosphere, uh, just blanketing the Northern Hemisphere with radioactive fallout. And so I've always been concerned. But really I, I got politically involved when I led the movement in Australia in 1971 against French atmospheric tests in the Pacific Ocean, and we were getting a lot of fallout in Australia. And that movement led to the international court telling France that it shouldn't test. And so France was forced to test on the ground. So I saw how a democracy can be used just purely by educating people about the medical dangers of radiation and fallout. So that was the... And then I also led the movement in Australia in 75 against uranium mining by talking to the workers and telling them how dangerous it was both themselves, their children and what happened to it when it's exported and put in nuclear power plants. So that's my a little bit of my background. And that was simultaneous with your training and then going into pediatrics. Yes, yes, I did the whole thing simultaneously. In fact, I did the French test issue while working 80 hours a week as a pediatric intern at the Adelaide Children's Hospital. So when people say they haven't got time, you've always got time if you have passion in your soul about an issue. How did Three Mile Island impact your actions involving nuclear here in the States? Well, I was already deeply involved when it happened. I think I'd already founded Physicians for Social Responsibility in Boston in 78. And what happened was I put an ad in the New England Journal of Medicine about the medical dangers of nuclear power, 
and it was published the day after Three Mile Island melted down. <laughs> Suddenly we were besieged by 500 new members and we were operating out of a sort of broom cupboard in the basement of a Harvard medical practice. So we just grew exponentially after that and then we got into the medical dangers of nuclear weapons. So we really led the movement in a way against nuclear power but also strongly against nuclear war and nuclear weapons. And at the time Reagan was president saying, you know, he might press the button even just joking and people were really scared. So we grew to a an organisation of... Um, we had 152 chapters and 23,000 members, most of whom were physicians. And I think we were one of the leaders of the nuclear weapons freeze, and I think we helped, in fact, to bring an end to the Cold War along with a lot of other people. Three Mile Island, for the horrors that it created, also seemed to be a boost in terms of people being aware of nuclear suddenly as an issue and getting them stirred up about it. But through the years, that fear has gone away, and there's been a lot of propaganda towards pro-nuke and the nuclear renaissance and all the rest. How have you positioned yourself with your work to continue combating it? Well, I've just continued with my educational efforts about the medical dangers of nuclear power and nuclear waste and nuclear accidents. I wrote a book called uh, Nuclear Madness, which came out just after Three Mile Island happened, and it sold a lot of copies. And it was about how radiation causes mutations and how it causes cancer and how long the incubation time for cancer is after you've been irradiated, like 5 to 70 years. And since that time, I mean, I've been on the speaking circuit in the United States and Canada and all over the world, really, uh, talking about these issues. Through the years, besides Physicians for Social Responsibility, you have founded the Women's Action for New Directions, WAND, the Nuclear Policy Research Institute, which we turned into Beyond Nuclear. What was your goal in starting so many different groups? Well, I started WAND, which was originally called Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament, and it still should be called that, because after I gave a talk so often, it was the women who were absolutely passionate about it, and I thought 53% of the women, of the people in America are women. And so we have a huge potential political power. And so I wanted to actually call it the Women's Party for Survival. But people said, oh, you can't start a new political party, which I think actually was wrong. And I should have done that. But that's why I started it. And it's grown to be extraordinarily successful. PSR has become very successful. I then dropped out for a little while. I had a few personal problems in my life, and then I came back and founded NPRI, the Nuclear Policy Research Institute, and held, I think, six or seven very important symposia, one called Three Minutes to Midnight about the impending threat of an accidental nuclear war, which still exists, one called Global Warming and Nuclear Power, and from that conference, a book was written called carbon-free, nuclear-free by Arjun Makajani, showing that America could be carbon-free, nuclear-free by 2050, but in fact it's probably more like 2030. Um, and we held one called Nuclear Weapons in Space, called War in Heaven, and a book came out of that symposium called War in Heaven. And so I did that, and then I got tired and sick of raising money, because that's what you have to do when you have non-profit organisations. 
And I gave my 501c3 to my very close friends who took the non-profit 501c3 and founded Beyond Nuclear, which is really an offshoot of NPRI. Then after a while, I've had someone who's been wanting me to do a radio program, and I said no because I can't raise the money, but suddenly money fell into my lap, and so I've had a radio program for four and a half years on Pacifica and Allied Networks called If You Love This Planet. And I did 196 programs interviewing some of the most important scientists in the world. I've just ended that because I couldn't raise the money. But now I have another organization called the Helen Caldicott Foundation because people said, why don't you call it after yourself because you're a brand? And I thought, that's silly, but I did. And I'm in the process now of organizing a very big two-day symposium on the second anniversary of Fukushima in the New York Academy of Medicine called The Medical and Ecological Consequences of Fukushima. What is the scope of information? Who's going to be presenting there and what are you looking for the impact to be? I'm setting it up primarily to try and educate the media who are profoundly ignorant about the medical and biomedical effects of radiation and, and about nuclear accidents. So I had invited the Prime Minister of Japan, who was the Prime Minister during the accident, Naoto Khan, but I think he can't come. I have a couple of excellent nuclear engineers who are going to speak about how the accident occurred and why. I've got a female doctor from the Independent Investigative Commission set up by the Parliament in Japan, and she's going to talk about how corrupt the government was and the corporations and how the Japanese culture really led, in fact, to the accident. There's another Japanese diplomat who will be speaking about the politics related to the accident in Japan, and then someone else is speaking about the severe contamination from cesium and other isotopes in Japan, then another doctor from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute is going to speak about the ocean contamination from massive amounts of radioactive material being spilt and still being emptied into the Pacific Ocean. Another wonderful evolutionary biologist who will be speaking about what's happening to the wildlife in the exclusion zones of both Chernobyl and Fukushima and there are many mutations and abnormal insects and birds that they're finding, and that should be then applied to human beings. There's another wonderful Polish expert in thyroid abnormalities in children. He's going to speak about the fact that over 100,000 children less than 18 have been examined by ultrasound in Fukushima and about 37.5 of them have thyroid lesions, and some are already developing thyroid cancer. Alexei Yablokov, who was the lead author of a wonderful report on Chernobyl for the New York Academy of Sciences, is going to come. Another man is going to speak, Dr. Wojtelecki, about very severe congenital defects associated with Chernobyl in a town where the people eat the local food and mushrooms, which is very radioactive. I've got a man, Dr. Herb Abrams, who is on Bear 7 Report Commission for the National Academy of Sciences. So I really do have a very comprehensive list of speakers, including another one who's going to speak about how women and female children are much more sensitive to radiation than men. 
So I think people learn an enormous amount by attending this symposium, but mainly I want to attract the national and international press to try and educate them about the basics of radiation biology. That's an astonishing list that you just gave and comprehensive, and it sounds like you're going for the world experts whose credentials cannot be cut out from under them. Absolutely, yep. So if people wish to attend this, we'll get on to the media in a moment, but if people want to learn more about this and if they wish to attend it, how can they go about doing this? Where can they get the information? They can go to my website at nuclearfreeplanet.org and there is information about the symposium and a registration form. And I think the sooner they get in, the better. It's $60 to register, and that means two days of wonderful expert knowledge being distributed and two very nice box lunches on each day. And you'll have a chance to talk to each other and learn from each other and from the speakers. Is there a limit to the number of people who can be handled by the venue? Well, we've got a room for 300, which is pretty big because it's two weekdays, but we can probably move to another room of 500. So I think we're covered in terms of space. And will this be live streamed at all or made available over the Internet? Yes, the symposium will be live streamed and shortly there will be information about that on the web page. You said you want to make connection with the media and try and convince them to cover the issue more thoroughly. How has the media outreach been going so far? Well, we've only just started. We've uh, hired PR people, and they are about to begin working on it. It's still two months away, so we'll be sending a press release out very shortly, and there will be extensive follow-up. So that's where we stand at the moment. And I would just like to suggest to any listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat that if you have contacts in the media to let them know that this is happening so they have a shot at covering it. They can go to their editors. They can go to their assignment editors. You know, you've been dealing with this issue for so many years now. Are there times when you look at it and you feel a sense of despair or hopelessness? And if so, what do you do during times like this to keep yourself going? Well, it kind of is pretty hopeless because the nuclear industry and the weapons industry, it's all one and the same thing really, have enormous amounts of money, of political power and persuasion, and they put out enormous amounts of propaganda and they have the ear of the Congress and the Senate and, of course, the White House, let alone other countries. And meanwhile, the nuclear industry is propagating nuclear power plants as fast as it can all over the world, and any country with a reactor can make a nuclear weapon from the plutonium in the reactor. So what they're doing is proliferating nuclear weapons and increasing the risk of nuclear war. And of the 20,000 nuclear weapons globally now, Russia and America own 97% of them. So unless those two nations behave responsibly and start to disarm immediately, I'm afraid that lateral proliferation could trigger a global holocaust between those two nations, either by computer error or mistake or human error or whatever. And that is clearly outlined on the website nuclearfreeplanet.org. How do I deal with the sense of hopelessness? The only way I can do it, actually, is to be active and keep going. And sometimes miracles occur. I mean, the Cold War did end. I never thought that would be happening in my lifetime. And being active stops me feeling depressed. If I, if I stop, I get profoundly depressed. So it's my form of therapy, I guess. 
if you could give direction to activists for where we should be focusing, some of the work that we need to be doing, what would your suggestions be? I think first, before becoming active, you need to really be educated so you can take on any critics full frontal and demolish them. So I'd advise you, I guess, to read my two books, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer and Nuclear Madness, and go to the website Nuclear Free Planet where you can learn a hell of a lot. Dr. Caldicott, is there any final word you'd like to leave the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat with? Yes, I think that it's it's imperative that people who are deeply concerned about all things nuclear learn as much as they can about the medical effects of radiation, the biological effects. And I have written two books specifically in that area. One is called Nuclear Power is Not the Answer by the New Press, and the other one is Nuclear Madness, What You Can Do by W.W. W. Norton. If you read those two books, you'll know more than anyone who's interviewing you. You'll know more than the people at the nuclear power stations or the NRC because they don't understand radiobiology. So once you're armed with the facts, then you'll know what you have to do. No one's ever told me what to do. I just kind of know as I learn more, and I do it. And again, with the symposium coming up in March, for March 11th and 12th, how can people learn more about it, and how might they participate? We welcome people from all over the country, academics and politicians, but particularly members of the public who are deeply concerned about their adjacent reactors. You can go to the website nuclearfreeplanet.org. There's a registration form there and description of the conference. I have some of the leading scientists, physicians, radiobiologists in the world who are coming and some people from Japan who are deeply involved in the accident. So I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating. And on the other side of the symposium, how do you hope it's going to move our movement forward? How might we be able to continue to use this information to boost our presence? Well, it's a good question, but the New Press plans to transcribe all the speeches and turn it into a book. So the information will be available. I'm not sure if we can put it up. It's going to be live streamed throughout the world. I'm not sure if we can put it up on YouTube. I have to ask the New Press for their permission, and they may not want that. But certainly, you'll learn so much. You can take notes, and it will be available soon in book form. A video of all the speakers from both days of Dr. Caldicott's symposium is available at nuclearfreeplanet.org, and we will also have a link up on the Nuclear Hot Seat website. The most popular nuclear hot seat ever received 489,195 downloads in just five days, and it still keeps drawing. It's number 117, with Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education giving us an update on Fukushima and what he would do there if he were in charge. Here's that interview from September 10, 2013. Bring us up to date on the current status of Fukushima Daiichi. Paint the picture. How bad is it? Uh, yeah, in a word, Fukushima Daiichi is a mess. And uh, it didn't have to get as bad as it did. The condition of the site right now is that there's an enormous amount of water coming off of the mountain behind the site that's leaking into the basements of all the other buildings. 
This has been going on for 40 years. The mountain has released something on the order of a, a, a thousand tons of water a day through the groundwater, and about 400 has always leaked into the basement of these buildings. But they had some pumps, and uh, of course they didn't have a nuclear accident, so uh, they could pump that water out routinely. Well, when the uh, earthquake happened, the building sunk three feet. The, the whole coast of Japan sunk three feet, and that, of course, increases the hydraulic pressure. Uh, it cracked so that the foundation is now cracked. So the net effect is the mountain is still doing what the mountain's always been doing, putting groundwater into the bottom of this plant. But now there's radioactive material that's leaked out of the nuclear reactor onto the floor of the containment. And uh, uh, the, the containment building's leaking like a sieve through penetrations that failed during the accident and cracks and things like that. So this water is coming in direct contact with the nuclear fuel and is becoming heavily contaminated. So Tokyo Electric has been running around building, frantically building tanks, about three large tanks a week to make up for the amount of water they have to pump out of these basements. And in the process, they've created over a 1,000 tanks up on the hill behind the plant. Some of the t all these tanks are thrown up in a hurry. And they're, um, a lot of them are bolted together with rubber on the joints. And uh, they're only designed to last for five years and are already two years old. So they're already starting to leak into the groundwater. So you've got tanks leaking into the groundwater and you've got the nuclear plant leaking into the groundwater. So the immediate problem is the condition of the groundwater that's then leaking directly into the Pacific Ocean, like it always has, except now it's got radiation inside it. So what caught the public's attention last month is that one of these tanks was leaking substantially, and it had extraordinarily high levels of radiation inside it. The radiation would be lethal in four hours. So it was um, really nasty stuff. But there's a thousand other tanks that are similar. So it's not like there was, it's a one, it's a one tank problem. So that tank caught the public's attention. But in fact, there's a thousand tanks on that hillside plus the basement that is continuing to contaminate the groundwater on the site. And the groundwater is being pushed into the Pacific. So the net effect is uh, we're contaminating the Pacific Ocean and will for years, if not decades, to come. Anything else you want to add to the current situation? Yeah. I started this conversation by saying it could have been avoided. Two years ago, I wrote a book in Japanese only called Fukushima Daiichi, The Truth and the Future. And I talked about the fact that what needed to be done back then was to build a trench that isolated the plant from the mountain and fill it with something called zeolite. Zeolite is a volcanic ash that's very good at absorbing radiation. And then what that would have allowed would have been you could have pumped the clean water down so that it didn't enter the plant. The goal would be to pump the water table down. And I was told by Japanese officials at the time that Tokyo Electric didn't have enough money to do that. Well, it's a pay-me-now-or-pay-me-later situation because now they've got a multi-billion dollar problem on their hands and they need a bigger trench. Had they done it a couple of years ago, it would have prevented the groundwater from becoming contaminated. Now the groundwater is contaminated. But, you know, in the big picture, 
it's like filling a bathtub with the drain closed. Tokyo Electric is building the sides of the bathtub higher to keep the water in, but they're not turning the spigot off. And what they really need to do is turn the spigot off, and that's making sure that new, fresh groundwater doesn't get into the site. And that's not happening. That won't happen for years to come. What about the pending problem with their planned removal of the spent fuel rods starting in November? The second problem is the fact that they are planning to remove the fuel from Unit 4. Now, all of this groundwater problem is sort of a sideshow for the fact that we have three nuclear reactor cores that are melted down, and eventually four buildings are going to have to be completely uh, dismantled. The first and easiest problem is the fuel pool in Unit 4. If you recall back when the accident started, when the Americans were evacuated, the uh, reason for that evacuation was the fuel in the fuel pool at Unit 4. The meltdowns were not as bad as the danger of the fuel in the fuel pool at Unit 4. Well, now we're two and a half years later, and the fuel has cooled somewhat, and they can begin to remove the fuel. What that entails, think of a fuel rack as a pack of cigarettes, and you try to pull a cigarette out. If you hold the pack of cigarettes in the right direction and pull the cigarette straight up, it'll come out just fine. But if the pack is distorted and you pull the cigarette, it breaks. Well, that's the problem that they're going to encounter on Fukushima Daiichi 4. The racks are distorted from the earthquake. Oh, by the way, the roof has fallen in, which further distorted the racks. And uh, the net effect is that they've got the bundles of fuel, the cigarettes, if you will, in these racks. And as they pull them out, they're likely to snap a few. When you snap a nuclear fuel rod, that releases radioactivity again. So my guess is, and it's things like Krypton-85, which is a gas, uh, cesium will also be released, strontium will be released. They'll probably have to evacuate the building for a couple of days. They'll take that radioactive gas and they'll send it up the stack up into the air because xenon can't be scrubbed, it can't be cleaned. So they'll send that radioactive xenon up into the air and, and purge the building of all the radioactive gases and then go back in and try again. It's likely that that problem will uh, will exist on more than one bundle. So over the next year or two, it wouldn't surprise me that either they don't remove all the fuel because they don't want to pull too hard, or if they do pull too hard, they're likely to uh, damage the fuel and cause a, a radiation leak inside the building. So that's problem number two in this process, getting the fuel out of Unit 4 is a top priority item, but it's not going to be easy. Tokyo Electric is portraying this as easy. In a normal nuclear reactor, all of this is done with computers, and, and uh, everything gets pulled perfectly vertically. Well, nothing is vertical anymore in there. The fuel racks are distorted, and um, it's all going to have to be done manually through very murky water. The net effect is that it's a really difficult job, and it wouldn't surprise me if they snap some of the fuel and they can't remove it. Arnie, let's go to the hypothetical now. If you ruled the world, if you were suddenly at this moment put in charge of everything happening at Fukushima Daiichi from this point forward, where would you start? What would you do first, and how would you proceed? 
On my first five minutes on the job, I would fire Tokyo Electric. Uh, they're not an engineering company. They never were an engineering company. They're an operating company, and they didn't do a very good job at operating either, but they never were engineers. And I would bring in a large international engineering company to replace them. So problem number one is you've got people that don't know what they're doing trying to dismantle the site. Problem number two, though, uh, the second thing I would do is I would tell the Japanese people that they're on the hook here for something like a half a trillion dollars, U.S. dollars. That hasn't been done. The Abe administration hasn't admitted exactly how much this cleanup is going to cost because the Abe administration wants to start nuclear plants up, and if the Japanese people knew they were on the hook, it would be uh, a lot more difficult and there would be a lot more public resistance. So part of the problem with the cleanup to date has been incompetence by Tokyo Electric. But the second part, I can't blame Tokyo Electric. They don't have the money. And they never did have the money. And there's been this cozy relationship between the Japanese government and, and TEPCO that uh, the Japanese government has blamed Tokyo Electric but never stepped forward and tried to correct the problem. That's got to stop. Get rid of Tokyo Electric and have the Japanese government commit to spending the adequate money. Then where would I spend that money? First, I'd pump down the groundwater table where the clean water is coming. That would finally allow less in-leakage into the site, and you could finally clean these basements out. But without removing the clean water, you're never going to solve the problem of, of in-leakage into the basement. The second thing is I would remove the fuel from Unit 4 and Unit 3. Unit 3 is, in my opinion, as scary as Unit 4 because seismically they're both at risk. You know, Tokyo Electric built a wall along the ocean to keep the contamination from entering the ocean. But what that did is it made the site wet. It increased the water table on the site so that in the event of a seismic accident, the buildings won't respond the way they were designed to respond. So they're seismically at risk now. So Unit 3 has a little less fuel in it, but it's a mess because of the explosion. So that the net effect is that I don't know which presents the bigger risk, Unit 4 or Unit 3. They both have to have the fuel removed, and they're both going to be extraordinarily difficult to do that in their fuel pool. The last piece of the puzzle is what do you do with these carcasses, three nuclear reactors? No one knows where the nuclear fuel is, I'm sure. Most of it is not in the nuclear reactor, and, and most of that has wound up on the floor of the containment and, of course, is now spread out in numerous buildings. The radiation levels are extraordinary, and frankly, if I were a Japanese, I wouldn't want to expose a large number of Japanese men to the radiation levels they're seeing there. So my position has been for the last two years that the carcasses – of these three nuclear units that, that had the explosions should be put in a sarcophagus like Chernobyl and should be let to decay for at least 100 years. 100 years will knock the radiation level down by 10. So whatever the levels are, they'll be 10 times lower 100 years from now. Now, a, a Japanese finance minister said this week they can't do that because if they don't knock the buildings down, the public won't let them run their nuclear power plants. In other words, they, they need to show that there's some finality to Fukushima so that the public feels secure 
in running the other 50 nuclear plants in Japan. But the problem there is that they are willing to expose an extraordinarily large number of men, and maybe women, but men in that culture, to an extraordinarily high amount of radiation in order to meet a political goal. And the political goal is to get the 50 units that they have shut down right now back running. And I don't think human beings should be political radiation fodder for uh, the Abe regime and their attempts at getting the reactor started again. According to Bloomberg News today, they had a headline, Japan forms team to oversee Fukushima decommission toxic water. But in reading this brief article, the team is headed by Japan's trade minister, and members of the team include the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Authority and vice ministers of related ministries. So it sounds to me like an Olympics-related PR ploy to assure people that everything's going to be under control. How effective do you think a team made up of people like this is going to be in moving the cleanup forward? I think uh, involving Japanese government officials will be useless to uh, move the cleanup forward. What really needs to happen is an international group of experts has to come forward and come up with a risk-based plan. Where's the best and most important place to spend money right now? I think right now the Japanese have a Tokyo Olympics-based plan. Where's the best place to spend the money to keep the public's eye off of Fukushima so we can move forward on other counts. The other piece of that puzzle, though, is so you've got throw out Tokyo Electric, put somebody in charge who knows what they're doing, and then have a group of experts from around the world, independent experts, consult with that engineering company and come up with a strategic plan. Okay, it's really important to lower the water table. It's really important to do this, that, and the other thing. But the last piece is that I think we need a public oversight of that process. We need independent people, not nuclear experts, independent people from inside Japan and perhaps outside Japan to oversee the company that's tearing the plant apart. And if they are getting inadequate funds from the Japanese government, these independent people should stand up and speak out that the funds are not being made available. And I don't think that will happen without some real independence assured by the Japanese. We're dealing with a culture that's very top-down. You know, the, Everybody's trying to cover for the more important boss above them. And the net effect is that we're, we're two and a half years into the Fukushima cleanup, and, and it's worse, not better. So I think the uh, Japanese are still doing window dressing on this. Americans can, can do something about this, I think, especially West Coast Americans. I think if the people in California contact Senator Feinstein and uh, Boxer and the people in Oregon contact Senator Wyden and others, I think the congressional pressure from America can get the Japanese to change their approach. But until that happens, I don't think the Japanese government has a clear handle on the risk that their population is facing. We're getting calls from medical doctors in Japan who are saying that they're being told by their bosses to tell their patients that none of the uh, injuries they're experiencing are radiation-related. There's an enormous pressure on the medical establishment 
to downplay the effects of this accident on the people that have been exposed. And I think that's awful. A, a physician's responsibility shouldn't be to the uh, people in authority. The physician's responsibility should be to the public that they're serving. And that's been distorted in Japan. We're also seeing scientists in Japan who are refusing to work with other scientists uh, in assessing these radiation damage effects because they're afraid of their careers in this very bureaucratic top-down structure. So we're not getting any good science out of Japan, and we're not getting any good medical data out of Japan. And until those problems are cleared up, the IAEA's position will be substantiated. Everyone's saying, well, nobody died. Of course they're going to say that when the data records are, are distorted. So my other concern is in the broad cultural sense, the Japanese are under extraordinary pressure from high political pressure to minimize the effects of this accident so that the people of Japan are essentially a scientific experiment, but nobody's reporting the results. Have you tried to contact Japanese authorities to offer your assistance, or have you been asked by them for any input on how to proceed? The last two times I traveled over, I was concerned I wouldn't be let in the country. I did, when the accident occurred, talk about zeolite trenches to people in authority in Japan, but I was told that they couldn't afford to do it the right way. You know, when I went over for the book tour, which was in February of 2012, the publisher was very concerned that I wouldn't be allowed in the country. So this is a situation where I don't think the government wants to hear what real independent experts are saying, and that's really the travesty of Fukushima. Arnie, this is a thorough and, of course, a devastating picture of what is going on in Japan. If you had a message to give to the Japanese government or to the governments of the world, the citizens of the world, about the need for focusing on this problem before it's too late, what would you say? Well, there's two things. I, I, I don't care what God you pray to, but it's important that we all pray that there not be another large earthquake. That entire tank farm is held together with plastic pipe and could easily fail and run directly into the Pacific. That's the, that's the first piece of it. And the second piece of it is that if people in authority think they can cover that up, this entire situation up. I believe they're wrong. The difference now between now and Three Mile Island and between now and Chernobyl is that we have the Internet. So sooner or later, this information is going to get out. So I would hope that people in authority in Japan would recognize that and not try to impede the flow of information because the credibility of the Japanese government is on the line here. As I said, you know, Fairwinds continually gets information which we make public whenever we can. Of course, the fear is that if someone's going to lose their job, we try to sanitize the information to prevent that. But we are getting this information. It's coming out in drips and drabs. But it will continue to flow because of the Internet. And the Japanese government can't stop that. So I hope they will work with it instead of against it. And finally, with the Olympics being planned for Tokyo in 2020, how good an idea do you think that is? I think it was designed to take the public mind off of a bigger problem. 
Now, the Japanese are going to spend a couple billion dollars on the Olympics, and I think that money would be better spent cleaning up the, the site and cleaning up Fukushima Prefecture. I think the future of their kids is a lot more important than uh, being on ABC News for eight days. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, available at fairwinds.org. Finally, Ralph Nader spoke in New York on October 8th at the conference Fukushima Nuclear Accident, Ongoing Lessons. These are excerpts. We'll have a link up to the full speech on the website. I don't want to be redundant, and I know a lot of good material has been presented uh, today, uh, but... I do want to go through some of the experience here so we can understand what's behind the pressure historically for nuclear power. In 1963, I spent a uh, summer at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory where I was first introduced to nuclear power to produce electricity. And the place was full of engineers and physicists who kept handing my questions uh, between each other, specialties, And I asked them, uh, what's the worst that could happen? I always approached any new technology with that fundamental question. What's the worst that could happen? And they could never tell me. All they could tell me were the risks were vanishingly small and the defenses in depth were formidable. Those were the jargons of the time. What was interesting about that in the uh, mid-60s is that the projection for nuclear power was extremely ambitious. The Atomic Energy Commission predicted that there would be 100 nuclear plants in California alone by the year 2000. That's about one for every 11 miles on the coastline. But what happened in the meantime was two interesting developments. One we held mass training exercises in 1973-74 in Washington, D.C., where people from all over the country, near existing plants or proposed nuclear plants, came to learn about this industry, learn about how they could participate at the design stage and the construction stage, to learn about evacuation plans, to learn about what they were never taught in school, never told by newspapers, never informed about just how much radioactivity is in a 1,000 megawatt plant, which is hundreds of times more than the radioactivity from the Hiroshima bomb. Those people went back home and they organized the resistance to nuclear power. There hasn't been a single nuclear plant ordered, licensed, and placed in operation to produce electricity since the mid-70s. The analog to that effort was Wall Street. Nuclear power increasingly became uneconomic, and Wall Street would not fund it without more and more government supports and guarantees. Nuclear power arose out of a group of scientists and engineers who harbored more than a reasonable guilt complex for the uses of their knowledge in producing the atomic bomb. And out of World War II, this guilt complex transferred to a hope that there would be atoms for peace. In 1952, President Truman's Materials Policy Committee issued a report saying that the country should go solar. And by 1975, 
two-thirds of all residences would be solarized. Unfortunately, two years later, under President Eisenhower, the country decided to go nuclear under the Atoms for Peace program. Some of our most brilliant scientists and engineers were behind that effort, coming out of the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which were deliberate targeting of civilians to use the military's phrase in World War II in order to, quote, terrorize the population and reduce the morale in the countries that attacked us. That's where that guilt complex came from. And there were many, many discussions privately between these scientists and engineers who came out of the Manhattan Project about how they could redeem themselves and the atoms for peace. I remember as a youngster being told that there would be a little bit of an atomized gadget in cars and you'd never have to fill up your cars with gasoline. Nuclear power was to be too cheap to meter. When I was at Oak Ridge, I had a conversation with Dr. Alvin Weinberg, which extended in subsequent years. Dr. Weinberg was a great promoter of nuclear power, but he's extremely knowledgeable about its hazards. He wanted nuclear power plants to be built six at a time in a highly barricaded location run by what he called a nuclear priesthood, namely the best and the brightest. When I asked him who would be running the railroads and the trucking companies transporting radioactive waste, he got the message. But later on, he told me something very interesting. He said, if solar power ever came down to being only two and a half times more expensive than atomic energy, he would support solar energy over atomic energy. You can imagine the knowledge of risk that was behind that statement. We must remember one thing here. The uranium mines, the uranium radioactive tailings around those mines, the development of the fuel rods, the transportation to the location where the nuclear plant is, the creation of these nuclear plants with enormous complexities, the production of radioactive waste, which still do not have a permanent waste disposal, and all the problems appurtenant to a deadly substance that had to be 100% controlled. 99% is not enough. It was a technology that had one bite of the apple. All of this and the storage for tens of thousands of years of radioactive waste had one purpose, to boil water, to produce steam, or other reactor designs to produce heat. Now, the question that was very rarely asked in secret congressional hearings was, aren't there other ways to boil water without all the continuum of risk involved in the nuclear fuel cycle? It's often said that nuclear power is, is needed because of the climate change. Number one, you need a lot of coal to burn to enrich uranium. That's often not mentioned. Number two, as Amory Lovins has said repeatedly, if you take the investment in nuclear 
and put it in solar, renewable, other forms of renewable and conservation, you'd get far more BTUs, far more efficiently, far more safely, and far more benignly for climate change. We must remember that the price we pay for nuclear power up front, we pay as consumers and as taxpayers. Tens of billions of dollars have gone into developing the science, the technology, the operating applications of nuclear power paid by you, the taxpayers. That does not show up on your electric bill. We're dealing here with a silent, cumulative form of violence that does not leave empirically sensitive traces until it's too late. Therefore, it puts the public off guard. In comparison with the fire, we know what to do. We flee the fire and or try to put it out. The silent violence of radioactivity does not provoke the sensory responses in order to activate better choices. I find that the arguments against nuclear power are overwhelming. The answer is we've never had a, a class nine meltdown in the United States. You had a very serious one in Chernobyl where now there are hundreds of square kilometers uninhabitable except for the wild animals and the rodents and a few birds. Villages and towns evacuated. You have Fukushima, which continues to boil up its tragic results. In our country, we had a number of close calls inviting the metaphor of playing Russian roulette with the American people and the land of our country. In the 1960s, the Atomic Energy Commission issued a report which said that a Class 9 meltdown in one nuclear plant could contaminate, quote, an area the size of Pennsylvania, end quote. Is this the kind of gamble we want to take in order to boil water when there are so many other superior ways to meet our energy needs, as Peter Bradford and others earlier today have pointed out? My list of charges against nuclear power, all of them begin with the letter U. Nuclear power is unnecessary, uneconomic, unsafe, uninsurable, unevacuable, unfinanciable, unaccountable, and undemocratic. It's unnecessary because it is not a matter of nuclear power or coal. It's a matter of nuclear power or the horrendously wonderful opportunities for conservation. We waste well over half of our energy in the United States, even by comparison with Western Europe. By comparison with realizable, practical technology, we probably waste over two-thirds. A megawatt you do not waste is a megawatt you do not have to produce. We must never forget that the fastest, quickest, cleanest, most efficient, most job-intensive, most decentralized form of energy today is not to waste it. Whether it's retrofitting buildings, motor vehicles, lighting, heating, air conditioning, industrial engines, and so on. The other alternatives are clear. Finally, solar is coming into its own. 
Wind power is creating more BTUs worldwide now than nuclear. And we are seeing a fast-rising local industry called rooftop solar installation, led by many, many jobs being created in California and spreading around the country. Nuclear power is uneconomic because, first of all, we pay for it in many ways beyond just the electricity bill. We pay for it, as I said, with tax dollars. We pay for it in many other collateral ways that an economy has to adjust to such a dangerous industry. National security ways, for example. It's uneconomic uh, by the admission of the industry itself. You're beginning to see cancellations of the recent new proposals to build nuclear plants, Florida being one, Georgia may not be far away, but in both those states, consumers were required to pay up front for the cost of the nuclear plant before a shovel hit the ground. It's uneconomic because Wall Street says it's uneconomic. Warren Buffett says nuclear power is uneconomical. Wall Street will not lend utilities money to build a nuclear plant without just about 100% loan guarantee from Uncle Sam, you the taxpayer. Nuclear power cannot meet market tests. This uh, has always intrigued me why the Tea Party right-wing free market Milton Friedman types would not come out against nuclear power because it's basically government-guaranteed industry. One reason, of course, is the political and economic power of a government-guaranteed industry funneling big money to politicians and, in effect, convincing those who need convincing on other than rational grounds that there's no alternative to nuclear power. It's unsafe because of earthquakes, human error, malfunctioning equipment, because of sabotage. Every nuclear plant is a national security peril. It's unsafe because there's no place acceptable by the local population to store the waste. Spent fuel rods are piling up next to nuclear power plants, a clear target for sabotage, if not seismic exposure. It's uninsurable from the beginning. The government had to pass the Price-Anderson Act, which in effect said that the insurance companies would not insure nuclear power, therefore Apart from a fractional bit of insurance, the great bulk of economic risk from a nuclear power accident would be on the taxpayer's back. That's the meaning of Price-Anderson, which is renewed every decade or so. It's unevacuable, and this comes to Indian Point. Any nuclear plant that does not have a live drill to make sure that its evacuation plan is anything other than a fantasy plan, cannot be allowed to operate. Indian Point is 30 miles or so north of Manhattan, much closer to New York City than Fukushima is to Tokyo. There is no practical evacuation plan that could work in that area, not just 10 miles out, 20 30 miles, 50 miles, you have 19 million people. People can hardly get out of New York City at rush hour time. Can anybody credibly present a scenario where given our transportation lockups 
and the density of population and the panic that would occur and the lack of any drills, the lack of any practice other than paper models that that area around Indian Point can be evacuated. And as you know, Indian Point has been rife with problems, replete with waivers, near active earthquake zones, aging, decaying. Indian Point 1 shut down years ago. Indian Point 2 and 3 up for recertification by a compliant Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Nuclear power is unfinanceable. I've gone through that. It doesn't meet a market test. It is basically a government-sanctioned and funded industry. Excerpts from a speech by Ralph Nader that was delivered at the conference Fukushima Nuclear Accident Ongoing Lessons. For Ralph Nader's full presentation, including specifics on Indian Point, and all the participants in that two-day event, both in New York and Boston, they are posted on the site of the sponsor, samuellawrencefoundation.org, and we will also have a link up on nuclearhotseat.com slash blog under episode 131. Hey, if you haven't done so yet, please consider donating to Nuclear Hot Seat. Go to the homepage, click the Donate button, easily done and greatly appreciated. The more popular we get, the higher my bandwidth charges, so please, your help in covering them will be greatly appreciated. And it will help me continue to bring you the week's anti-nuclear news, numbnuts of the week, the NRC Duck Report, and so much more. Thanks for anything you can do this holiday season. Here's today's final thought. Merry Hanukkah to Kwanzaa Solstice It's the holiday time of year. Hanukkah to Kwanzaa Solstice It's the season that brings good cheer. Be you Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim. If you're coming from love, it's true. Hanukkah to Kwanzaa Solstice And Happy New Year to you from Nuclear Hot Seat. A reminder that my book will be launching in early 2014. I promise, I promise, I promise. The title, My Very Personal Nuclear Reaction, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. I'll let you know all about it, and I will be posting a free chapter at NuclearHotSeat.com as soon as it is formatted and as soon as I can figure out the tech to achieve that. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. Comments welcome on the website or on either of the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook pages. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2013. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You have my permission to reuse this material as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you all to have a blessed, peaceful, safe, and non-radioactive holiday season because we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Do not go back to sleep, because it's sad but true, we are all in the nuclear hot seat.
hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.